Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to The Debrief. Super excited. I'm here today with Nick once again because he did such a great job, and we love him from San Antonio, Texas. And we got Stephanie back for a couple up, more guys? weeks. Super excited. We got a great show today and some tough questions, huh? We did, yeah. So we've noticed um, a lot of questions came in today actually about the Old Testament. I think a lot of folks at Sandals Church right now as we're working through our 60 Days to a Better Me Bible study plan on the Sandals Church app, little plug there if you haven't checked that out yet. Um, we're in the Old Testament right now, and I know even in my small group, we've had some really hard, awkward questions as we all try to figure out what this means for us. So we've got some of those on the episode today too, which I'm excited to get into. Yeah. And we'll also be talking about passion, sexuality, and death and how all of that fits together. Yeah. yeah. So nice, light, easy episode. <laughs> you ready to jump into the questions? Yeah. Thanks for the tough questions, guys. Yeah. So on last week's episode, you started talking through Jeremiah 29, 11 right. as a verse yeah. that gives us a lot of hope. And we actually had a couple of people writing questions about that verse um, and specifically asking, saying people like to quote things like Jeremiah 29, 11 as an encouragement that God has plans for us. But since that passage was written to the Israelites specifically, is it okay to, for us to take it personally? Uh, Amy wrote in and said, I struggled knowing if Old Testament promises are also made to us now. And Megan actually wrote in a similar question too. So I'll ask these together. She asked if are the promises in the Old Testament, like what God says to Abram in Genesis 12, one through three, are those promises to me as well? Yeah. So the Genesis 12, one through three, uh, let's set that aside and let's go with the Jeremiah 29, 11. So basically what you have is you probably have uh, some young people that were raised in church or they're in some kind of Bible class and there's just, there's too much time on their hands. So what they're going to do is they're going to find these wonderful promises in the Bible and find all these reasons why this gives you no hope whatsoever. And that's just really <laughs> one of the challenges. So what I would say is here's where your professor or perhaps your pastor is right. That Jeremiah 29, 11 is a real text to a real people in real time. So the, the text is from prophet, the prophet Jeremiah to the people of Israel who are presently in that moment being carried off into slavery in Babylon. So the first promise is specifically to them, but everyone reads scripture to have a meaning then and now and for all time. And so prophecy is not just cemented in its uh, day. We need to understand what, what was Jeremiah trying to say? Why was he saying uh, this to them. So the first meaning and most important meaning is what did it mean to the original hearer? But why then is it recorded if it only has meaning for those people? Mm. So th there's no reason to record it. So God had love for an ancient people in a specific situation that has nothing to do with me forever, all time. Yeah, that's nice Then don't them. ever read your Bible. Yeah. Don't ever read your Bible unless you're interested in history and want to be bored because there are better written historical books than the biblical format, because the Bible is not just a history book. It's not trying to entertain you. It's trying to deliver you. So what I would say is, yes, this critical person that you've heard from thinks they know something about the Bible and they want to devoid it from all meaning and purpose and hope for your life. Yes, part of what they're saying is true. However, there's also another part is, does God have a plan for his people all time, irregardless of whether they're Jewish uh, or, or Gentile, which we're all Gentiles, um, so yes, God has a plan for his people. Just, just Google the word plan for verses in the New Testament. God still has a plan. God still has a purpose. What is God's plan? Is it for good or disaster? It's still for good. Is it to give us hope or to discourage us? It's still for hope. Is God still preparing a place for us in our future? Yes. Jesus says in John 14, behold, I go to prepare a place for you. 
you know where I'm going. Philip says, we don't know where you're going. Here's where I'm going. In my father's house, there are many mansions. And behold, I, I'm preparing a place for you. And so Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, 11 is this beautiful, rich verse that we need to understand. So we need to look at what did it mean to them? And now what does it mean to me in my situation? So God has a plan for me. God has a purpose for me. What's the very next verse? So we know Jeremiah 29, 11, 29, 12 is, and I will be found by all who genuinely search for me and seek me. See, that's why we need to, to read that text. So God has a plan, God has a purpose, and I can find that plan, I can find that purpose by finding him if I truly seek him. That's for all time, for all people who want to follow God and want to know God. And so, yes, it has a specific meaning for the Jewish people in a specific time, in a specific place, but it also has meaning because it reveals the heart of God no matter what we're going through, no matter where we are, no matter how we've sinned. The people of Israel had repeatedly sinned, repeatedly rejected God, and yet in their disaster and in their death, God still has a plan. So who God is, is eternal, even though he might be speaking practical in a specific place in a specific time. Now, here's the danger. God has a specific plan for me. That, that's where I think exegetical heresy comes out. What I need to understand is God has a plan for his people and God's heart is for me to join that plan, not for God to outline a specific plan for me. So that's where Western culture, self-centered or narcissistic culture is heretically wrong. God does not have a specific plan for me. He has a plan for his people. And his plan is that I would join that plan, join that team, be a part of that movement. And then I experience the blessings of a future, a hope and a purpose. And the reason why so many people are miserable is they're saying, what is God's plan for me? Rather than saying, what is God's plan for his people? So the question is, am I his people? And if I am one of his people, but I'm not following the plan for his people, then I'm not experiencing the blessings. I'm not experiencing the future. I'm not experiencing the hope. Mm. And so that's where the theological breakdown happens is we make it all about myself rather than God's plan for his people. And this happens in various issues. Uh, you know, so many of the Calvinistic texts, you know, where God's in charge, he selects, he picks, he's talking about, he selects his people, his people are elect, uh, the Gentiles are elect. And so then they take that verse and they apply it to themselves and they say, I was chosen, mm -hmm. I am elected. And what it says, it's not what it's saying. It's God saying, look, I've chosen all of you, both Jew and Gentile. So when you read uh, Ephesians through the light of the current issue of the book of Ephesus, and here's the current issue, not whether or not God is chosen and God is sovereign simply in the elective process, and I'm getting into our series in the fall called Election, but it's, are, are Gentiles chosen just like Jews? Yes, that has been the plan since the beginning of time, and the mystery has been revealed in Christ. And so, so how does that apply to me? It's not that I am chosen, it's that God has chosen his people. First Peter says this, a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Once you, plural, were not a people, but now you, plural, are a people. And, and that's just, you know, I know some of you guys, your minds are exploding right now, but that's, that's how you need to learn to read the scriptures. So one of the first questions when you, and we, we don't do this in English because you, you don't understand the language in which you're raised, right? You just speak it. So when I look at the Hebrew, I have to ask myself, you know, what, what is the meaning of this word? 
Then I have to ask, you know, is the word uh, feminine? Is it masculine? Then I have to ask, you know, is it plural? Is it singular? Then I have to ask, is it present tense, past tense, you know, future tense, right? We have all these tenses in English that we don't understand and it's called parsing. And you go through this process of trying to understand a language you don't speak, mm-hmm. but in English, it's just your language. we just say, see you later. Yeah. And you have no idea that I've just said, you know, to you in a non-gender specific way, I will see you in the future. And you, you don't even think about that in English because it's just what you're raised. So we need to learn to look at scripture and ask great questions. And Jeremiah 29, 11 is a beautiful verse. And for any professor, any teacher, any Christian to divorce that wonderful nugget of truth from your life, I think is heretical and demonic. Now, to make it totally personal and all about you is also heretical and demonic. And so we have to be very, very careful. So the other passage that you talked about is in, um, was in Genesis 12, Mm -hmm. correct? Yeah. That is specifically to Abraham, but here's how it connects to us. Abraham is going to be the father of many nations. So if I become a part of Abraham, if I become a part of his family, I am blessed like him. I am going to participate with him. I am going to join in those things. That's why when I was a kid in church, we sang a song called Father Abraham. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's this really weird, weird song. Once you get in your head, you can't get it out. But it's Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. You know, yeah, yeah. I am one of them. And so are you. Uh, so, and again, I you're, only know you're, you're on the debrief. I'm... Well, you're a woman <laughs> yeah. and that's offensive. And so this is why women, this is why we don't need to make uh, the New Testament gender neutral because in the old, in when the Bible was written, sons were the most important and valued thing. So, as a woman, God has now called you son. Mm-hmm. What He's saying is, women aren't second class citizens; they are as valuable as a son. And so, then we, you know, we want to get rid of that text, and we're missing out on the importance of that. Um, you know, you could you could translate it, sons and daughters, as desperate and or, or desperately loved or, or beloved child, because you want to put the emphasis on a wanted child, a celebrated child. Um, whereas in our world today, a lot of children aren't wanted and they're aborted, mm-hmm. you know, which is the sin of our age. And so, um, and now in our culture, you know, we talked about uh, the, the man crisis. Uh, Google shows that most parents want a girl nowadays. So what's more highly valued in our culture today is a little girl and more than a little boy. So our culture has shifted from a male dominated society where the value is placed on a son to a culture that's shifting and placing the value on a little girl um, and little girls are great. I have two of them. So, well, they're not so little anymore, but they were at one time and it, and it was wonderful. So I think specifically the, the Genesis 12 passage, yes, it's to Abraham. It's for him. And, and, and we, and we look at him as he, as he gets to know God, he wrestles with God and he trusts God. And so I have to say, okay, so Abraham did this. I can do this. God gave a promise to Abraham and all his children the book of Romans tells us and Galatians tells us in the New Testament that we are all Abraham's children by faith, not by blood, by faith. And so we become a child of God. We become a child of Abraham by faith in Jesus Christ. So I think a couple of weeks ago, oh no, it was at the youth conference. I spoke on uh, Luke chapter 16, the rich man and Lazarus. Mm-hmm. So the rich man lives in luxuries, dressed in purple all day long. Um, And Lazarus is poor and only the dogs are there to comfort him and lick his sores. They both die. And the poor man goes, listen, it's to the bosom of Abraham. And what that means is he goes to the place of intimacy and and being loved by Abraham, who's the founder of our faith. Now, ultimately, that's the way the Jewish audience would have understand heaven. Mm -hmm. We as Christians now understand heaven, that it's not the place where Abraham only dwells, 
but it's the place where God dwells in all his faithful people. And it is governed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. So um, I know that was a lot. And as some of you are like, oh my gosh, I will never understand the Bible this way. Don't be discouraged. I practiced every day. I, um, you know, I, I was frustrated uh, for a lot of times at the very beginning. Just keep studying, keep growing, keep trying to learn and don't give up and don't let somebody discourage you. Don't, again, what did what did the devil say to Eve? Did God really say that? And so mm-hmm. that's just what I feel like is happening here with Jeremiah 20, 29, 11, and then uh, Genesis uh, 12. Does, it, does God really have a promise for you? Mm-hmm. Is there really a plan for you? And he's trying to rob the joy of that verse for us. So we need to embrace it as our own, but then we have to ask, how do I join this? Not how do I get God's blessings to bless me? And I think I said that was a two weeks ago. Don't ask God to bless your life, but ask what kind of life God blesses. Mm-hmm. And and that's where our culture is off. So that was like a 37 minute answer to uh, a really great question. That's a really good answer. Thank you. Well, that's what you guys are paid to say. <laughs> <laughs> Mac wrote in and said, recently my mother started reading through the Bible and it has been so encouraging to see her grow in her relationship with God. She's currently in the Old Testament and she's having a hard time understanding a lot of the content around women. She doesn't understand how the Old Testament can speak about women in a negative second class and sometimes degrading way. She specifically asked me about Numbers 31, where Moses instructs the Israelites to kill all Midianite women who had slept with a man and keep any of the virgin women after battling the Midianites. I would love your help in answering my mom's question. In the New Testament, it seems so clear that Jesus's love for women is real. But if I'm being honest, sometimes I get a little confused and some of the content in the Old Testament confuses me. I know God is good and loves women, even when I don't understand certain parts of the Bible, but I still want her to understand the issue. So how can I help my mother in her study? Right. So Numbers 31, you know, uh, for everybody who's listening is a very, very difficult text. And it's where God tells Moses to destroy um, the Midianites, correct? Yeah. I don't have the Bible in front of me. So uh, that's what God is telling Moses. And so here's the problem. Whenever you find a, a text where you're just like, this doesn't make any sense, you may need to back up a little bit. And so in order to understand Numbers 31, you need to go back to uh, Numbers 25. And in Numbers 25, what we what we read is, is these Midianite women were enticing Jewish men to leave their faith, abandon their faith, so stop worshiping God, who is almighty and, and, and the one only true God, right? The God of, of the Jews, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, God of Jacob, the God of Jesus Christ, right? Whom we believe in as Christians and start worshiping Baal. So who is Baal? Baal is a sexual God. And so for us as Christians, right? We go to church, we, we sing, we listen to a message. You know, we, we pray to God's word. There's not a big orgy after every single service. That's what happened with Baal. So the culmination of, of Baalic worship was sexual uh, intercourse between men and women, between men and men, women and women, right? It was like no holds barred. Uh, And many of the ancient cults uh, surrounded their worship based upon sex. And the same thing is true in Hinduism today. You go to some Hindu cults in India, and it's all about sexual uh, rituals. And that's why uh, sex is so much the idea is so much looser within many uh, Hindu uh, cultures and tribes and and sects of uh, of Hinduism. It's because it's a part of the DNA of their worship. Not all Hindu uh, religions, but but many of them. And so Hindu is a broad term that describes literally thousands of specific religions within the the country of India and its surrounding nations. So you ha- you have these women who are basically priests for Baal. 
and they are enticing and engaging Jewish men to have sex with them and to uh, participate in this. Here's what happens in Numbers 25, and this is why God loses his mind, loses control, and not loses control, but, but literally decides to judge and kill all of these women because they're having sex and now they're doing it within the tabernacle. So Genesis 25, and, and as this question came in, I'd never read it specifically this way, but Moses and all the leaders of Israel are weeping because look, man, we're losing control. God's delivered us from Egypt. We're getting ready to go in the promised land. We're going to conquer. And now all of our men, their focus is not on God, not on the battle ahead, not at taking the promised land. They're having sex with these uh, women who are prostitutes for Baal. And while they're weeping at the tent, talking about this, a man sneaks a uh, Balak prostitute into the tent of God, the, the tabernacle of God, the holiest of holies, the place where you worship. And they go in there and they're engaging in intercourse. And Phineas, the, the Levite, goes in, takes a sword, stabs and kills them both as they're having sex in the, the house of God, the most holy place for uh, um, God's people. And so that's why in uh, Numbers chapter 31, God says, this is enough. We have to kill all of the women who are engaging in this and, and pulling our men in this direction. And then there's an exception. There's always grace, even in the midst of judgment. God says the exception is women who are virgins. So what he's saying is women who have not participated in this occultic practice, they have value, they are loved, they are important. They are not to be judged in the same way that the women who are leading our men into an occultic practice of worship. And so what I would say is women have always had value. Uh, and one of the ways that women have power that men will never have, we will never have this power. It does not exist. Men are useless when it comes to this. Men do not have sexual power. Women do. Women do. You know, most women could care less about what a man looks like with his clothes off. Men care a whole lot about a, what a woman looks like with their clothes off. And so they're being enticed and drawn by these women who are prostitutes for bail, and they have power over these men. I mean, you have a woman taking off her clothes, says, have sex with me right now, and she believes that honors her God. You know, I mean, think about that. I mean, guys are like, wow, wait a minute, I can... I can worship my God and I just have to sex, have sex with my wife and she can't stand me or I can become a worshiper of Baal and I can have sex with whomever I want. You can see the appeal. Mm -hmm. And so God says, look, we've got to deal with this because you cannot be the people of God if you're constantly having sex with these prostitutes of Baal. And so uh, God does value women all throughout scripture. We've talked about a series uh, at Sandals called Her, where we just look at uh, women of the Bible and how God uses them. So God values uh, women very much. Uh, the church is called the bride of Christ. Um, you know, so think about that. The church is given a feminine understanding. So Jesus is our savior. The church is our mother. So like we, we love the church. We serve the church. We care for the church. And the church is the place where God's motherly love cares for us. So feminism is valued. It is important. Uh, but we have to be careful about the feminine uh, power that overwhelms men, and that is a sexual power. And in that instance, it became more powerful than God in their lives. So powerful that they had sex in the holies of holies. And here's what I would say is, I think it's hard for us to understand that now. That's not the problem we have in the church now. The problem we have in the church now is we have priests having sex with boys. Uh, we have pastors having sex with little girls. And the church has not dealt with that the way that we should. How did God deal with it? He killed the perverted people who were doing harm to others in his church. And 
you know, what did we do in the church? We brushed it on the rug. We had a priest go to another church. We sent him to another country. Uh, in, in my in my tradition, we just move them down the road, and these people continue to abuse. And if we look at God's word, the church should take a harsh stance, and the church needs to deal with their own. Now, we can't go out and kill people, and that's not what we should do. But what we do nowadays, we lock them up and give them three meals a day and make sure they have health care for the rest of their life. I don't know that that's the right answer either. Mm-hmm. So, before we judge the scripture, we need to judge ourselves. We need to look at our own culture. Our own culture, you know, we don't we don't deal with sexual criminals, you know, either. And um, so in this instance, God said, deal with it, get it out. You will not move forward. You will not go into the promised land if you're going to continue to uh, worship Baal. And just so you know, they always struggle with Baal and Asherah. That is, that is the story. The sex cult is always the battle uh, of God's people because we are called to control our bodies and honor God with sex. If you are a Christian, sex is sacred and is to be abstained from except in a monogamous lifelong commitment. And so in Baal worship, anything goes. You could, you could have sex with a woman. You could have sex with a man. Sex was the centerpiece for us. The sacredness of sex is the centerpiece. And so I'm sorry that bothers you for your mom. There are a lot of passages where you read where you just go, but, uh, but hang in there. God's always right. Uh, he's never wrong. Just trust him in that process, and I hope it brings you some clarity. And I think that context helps our audience because it speaks to where we are nowadays. And I think, you know, mm-hmm. when you when you give us that understanding, it really helps inform, you know, what do we really believe and how should we act this out in our lives and in, in society and every day? Yeah, oh, yeah, so like this weekend, and we didn't get any questions on the four types of love, but our culture worships Eros, erotic love. So did Baal, so did Asherah. They worshiped... Um, you know, the, the feeling of sex. And so what happens when you worship Eros, uh, sex, sex becomes simply a vehicle to a feeling. Uh, and that's why so many people are hurt by sex today. Because when, when someone says, I want a cigarette, they don't want a cigarette. What they want is the feeling from nicotine that the cigarette provides. Mm-hmm. And so what do you, what do you do with the cigarette when you're done with it? Throw it away. You throw it away. That's what happens to people when they're used for sex. So when I have sex with a woman who's not my wife, I don't want her. I want the feeling that she can give me. And so I use her to get, to gain orgasm, uh, you know, to have uh, the serotonin and dopamine in my brain released. What I really want is the sexual release in my brain, and I need to use her to get that. And so what what the Bible says is sex between husband and wife is to be a unity it is to be a oneness of mind, body, and soul. We are not using each other. We are enjoying each other in a way that love is protected. And we don't do this with anyone else. This is our special thing, our special relationship. And, and that's what the Bible says. So great questions, like, guys. I feel like you guys are challenging me today. Well, I feel like it ties back to what you were even talking about last week, that coming in line with God's plan for you sexually was the hardest thing. Is the hardest oh, thing to yeah. give up and actually bring back in line. And I think that's where so many people are. And especially if you've been exposed to sexual sin. Mm -hmm. So like if you were raised in a home where God, God bless your parents, they protected you and they kept you from being sexualized. And that's one of the greatest sins of our culture is we're sexualizing children. Mm -hmm. This is why we don't want to be talking about LGBTQ issues in elementary school. Kids should be kicking a ball, learning math, reading books, playing. We don't need to sexualize everything. We want to, we want children to be children. You only get to be a kid once. And that's right. The the story of Peter Pan is we all want to go back. Mm -hmm. 
When Peter Pan and what's her name? He goes and visits Wendy. Wendy they're just friends. Mm-hmm. It's not sexual. He's going into her bedroom and there's nothing wrong with that, right? Think about it. a little boy is flying into a little girl's bedroom at night, you know, and nothing's wrong. And he wants to take her to Never Neverland. Well, that's not what we want to do now is we want kindergartners learning about sex. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just bad. So if you've been exposed to sex, you're going to have a harder time uh, submitting yourself to Jesus because it's what you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, and just so you know, the word sex in Hebrew is yodea. So think about that. Luke Skywalker or uh, uh, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, what do they name Yoda? Yoda. Yodea. Yoda is knowledge in Hebrew. Hmm. So those two, two very smart Jewish guys. So, um, but Yodea doesn't just mean like, I know you, I know you. When I have sex with my wife, it means I know her. And so there's a beauty to understanding and knowing sexuality, but there's also a consequence. And so we need to keep children from Yodeaing sex until God sexualizes them. And that is a process called puberty, Right. God has initiated that. And that's when we need to talk about, you know, sex and help them. And, and, you know, unfortunately nowadays we have to, you know, we have to talk to our kids about it very, very soon, but it's, it's really, really sad. Be a kid as long as you can and enjoy it because you never get to go back, you know, and that's why Peter Pan was so famous for so long. Yeah. Um, so we have a couple of questions that have come in um, on the topic of homosexuality, actually continuing in our conversation from our last episode. So Michelle wrote in said, hi, Pastor Matt, my name is Michelle and I'm 26. The hi, question- Michelle. The question I've had for a long time is for my little brother. His name is Preston. He's 16. Three years ago, he began telling family, friends, and the world that he's gay. Through my parents' divorce and myself being so young, taking care of him at the time, we all failed to introduce church, God, and the word of God into his life. He's very apprehensive and angry and says things like, if I walk into a church, God's going to light me on fire. He's agreed to come to church with me since I've made the walk back. However, my job currently has me working weekends, but thankfully not forever. My question is, what's God's view on my brother's statement of him being gay? I know at the very basics that God loves him just like anyone else. However, what is some information I can share with him to help change his mind or his focus? As you can imagine, I have many questions on this subject and have trouble choosing the right one to ask. I look forward to your response and thank you so much for all you do. Yeah. So I think, I think the challenge for anyone who is homosexual or gay or whatever language they use to challenge that is, you know, there's two, two types of love that are going to be a real, a real battle and maybe even three. So you, you have Eros, right? The erotic love. And that is the, the drive for romance and sex with, uh, for most people, it's the opposite sex. The overwhelming majority of people on earth are heterosexual. Uh, and then there are a select group of people uh, that are in the minority who have uh, an attraction towards the same sex. And I, I've never read any statistics to try to figure out what the actual number is. But here's here's the thing is, uh, I think that number is growing because human beings are social creatures and what's acceptable, we pursue. So whatever is socially acceptable, we were just talking before the show, we were told that marijuana usage would not go up if it was legalized. That is not true. It has been proven a false lie. More people than ever are using marijuana because what prevented them before was the criminalization of it. So now we've made it legal. Now everybody's, not everybody, but a lot more people are doing it and it's creating all kinds of problems. The same thing is true with uh, homosexuality. People are going to participate uh, in things in culture that are socially acceptable. I would say this, not only is it socially acceptable, but now it's celebrated. Mm Mm-hmm. It's celebrated. I mean, it makes you unique. It makes you special in our culture. And what child doesn't want to feel special and unique? Now, there are some kids, right? Um, their their inclination and attraction was going to be gay 
no matter what happened, right? We've had gay people with us, uh, you know, for as long as we know. That's why all the way back when you go into the Bible, Leviticus 19 speaks against it. Think about that. So that's thousands of years ago. There were people who had homosexual urges and desires and were acting out on it. And God said, look, this is not the way I want my people to act. And just so you know, not all cultures condemned it. The Greeks praised it. So Aristotle, Plato, you know, many of those uh, Greek philosophers that, that you looked at, you know, made, you know, had sex with, uh, the predominant way in Greek culture was with boys. That was the pediatry, I think is the word, uh, or we, where we get our word pedophilia. Um, they, they engaged in that, in that culture. And so cultures have had all kinds of ideas about sex. What the Bible says is it doesn't matter what, it, what your culture says about sex. Like it just doesn't um, like the Super Bowl. You guys watch Super Bowl, mm-hmm. the halftime show, you know, uh, of two girls, you know, uh, dancing on stage, you know, in lingerie like uniforms. And so the excuse was, well, that's Latin. That's Latin culture. Well, if you're a Christian, it doesn't matter if you're Latin or boring British, you know, European. I mean, Brits have a more boring, uh, a less sexually expressive culture. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean the Brits are right, and it certainly doesn't mean uh, Latinos are right. What we have to ask ourselves as a Christian is whether I'm, uh, you know, white guy from England or I'm, you know, the most, you know, uh, I'm the the greatest dancer of all time from Latin America. As a Christian, I have to submit my sexuality to Christ. And so what was really presented was, I, I, I thought was something inappropriate, and, and I didn't like it. I it just, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting old, whatever. Um, we can't, we can't derive our, our sexuality from whatever the Super Bowl says is appropriate. Mm. I wouldn't want my wife on stage dancing like that in front of men. Mm. I, I, I wouldn't want either of my daughters to do that. So why is it okay if Jennifer Lopez and who's the other gal? I don't remember. Shakira. Shakira, you know, and, and, you know, Shakira has made a lot of money by shaking her body in scandally clad clothing. That is not okay for a Christian. It's just, it's just not okay. We don't promote ourselves based upon our sexuality. We promote ourselves based upon our spirituality and that needs to be real. So I feel like I've gone all over the place. So here's what I would say to him is God loves him. Uh, God has a different plan for him and a better love than Eros. Eros is real. It's powerful and it will direct him. And here's the thing about Eros is Eros loves to ruin your life. It does, whether he's gay or straight, Eros loves to destroy your life. It, it promises never ending love and permanence and it never provides that. So uh, the challenges for homosexuals, I think is, is if you're a Christian is, it's how do I participate in Eros? And then how do I participate in Phileo? Those are the two challenges. Mm-hmm. How do I get in relationships with men and have healthy, loving, non-sexual relationships? But you need that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of gay guys that I talk to, that's what they crave. They're craving masculinity, they're craving connection, they're craving identity, and um, the, the, it, the, the masculinity that they themselves has seems confusing, and so they want that, and they seem to go after that in somebody else. Um, we don't understand attraction, we don't understand sex, and even if science cracks the code tomorrow, every individual is an individual, and you have your own story. And so what I would just say to him is, God loves you. Back to Jeremiah 29, 11, has a different plan for your life than you do. And that plan is not centered on sexuality. That plan is centered on Christ. That plan is centered on following God. Jesus didn't have sex. You don't have to have it either. So if, you know, heterosexual sex in the context of marriage is just not for you, then as a Christian, you have to consider celibacy. But before you even have those talks, let him know God loves him. Let him know God has a plan for his life. 
and, and, and just encourage every gay friend you have pursue Jesus and be willing to let everything go for the sake of him and his gospel, because that's the gospel. And that gospel is the same for the straight person as it is for the gay person. And listen to me, many straight people have chosen their sexuality over their spirituality. And one day they will stand before God and be judged in the same way that a homosexual who chooses their sexuality over their spirituality will be judged. And so we need to not pick on them. We all need to be challenged. I need to be challenged. It was the most difficult issue of my life. I had no problem giving up drinking, weed. Uh, you know, I, I didn't have like a huge problem being profane or ugly or nasty. Sex was the altar that uh, I had to go to and sacrifice myself on it. And so remember the prophets of Baal, they would go to the altar and have sex. We need to go to the altar of God and, and put our sexuality on the altar and say, God, kill it. And I'm going to live for you. And even in the context of marriage, I cannot be driven by arrows. I cannot. My wife is not just a sexual object. She is not my, my sexual playground or my sexual, um, what do you call it? Piece of playground equipment. Uh, jungle gym. Yeah. She's not my, she's not my, uh, you know, sexual jungle gym. And that's even in marriage. A lot of people think that's what it is and why that's why they have all these fights. Uh, because you're, you're just because you're married doesn't mean you're not sinning against your spouse when you're having sex with them. You, you can do that. I've done that. You have to figure out how do I honor this person? How do I deal with this arrows that in me runs out of control? You know, in, in many women, it's not arrows that runs out of control. It's storge. Mm -hmm. The focus is family. And it's all family. And that love, you know, supersedes, it makes Eros disappear and it forgets agape and, 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 and forgets phileo. And be, it's a real thing, but it can't drive the cart if you're a Christian. Agape love has to drive it. So I'll be praying for you, man. I hope that he comes to church and hopes that he discovers that God has a different life for himself. And that's why everybody out there that's, that's straight, that's why it's so important that you operate your sexuality according to God's word. A lot of people think straight, good, gay bad, but really it's not, are you gay or you're straight? It's, are you holy in your sexuality? And we're all called to the same standard. And that is to either participate in a lifelong monogamous heterosexual relationship or to be celibate. And uh, that's tough nowadays, but mm -hmm. it's because we worship arrows. I feel like I'm talking so long. No, you're doing no. Okay. No, love it. You guys are paid to say that though. <laughs> So along the same line, uh, Jeremy says, I struggle with homosexuality. I understand biblically God's design for marriages between a man and a woman. I long for the emotional intimacy that comes with romantic relationships. Is there a healthy way to choose and pursue a Christian woman when initial attraction isn't there? And if there isn't, is there a way to fulfill that longing for emotional intimacy? Yeah, there's nothing wrong with emotional intimacy. And again, that's why I would encourage you to get a counselor who uh, works with... Um, gay men and women who understands that because that's what I hear all the time. Mm -hmm. A lot of gay men long for that emotional intimacy. And then the confusion is what they really want is phileo and you got arrows that comes to the party and it just destroys everything. And I've seen homosexuality ruin friendships. I, it's, you know, sometimes both guys discover they're gay and it ruins the friendship. Sometimes one guy discovers he's gay, uh, does something to the other one who's not gay, and then they, they lose their friendship. And so they lose phileo because Eros crashes the party. And so what I would say is the first thing is you need to learn to develop healthy relationships with men. Every gay guy in our church, and I know they don't like that word, but that's the word I'm going to use because everybody understands what I mean. Every person that identifies as gay, every woman that identifies as lesbian, you need to develop phileo love with 
uh, people that are safe for you. So that may mean that you don't hang around with gay guys because that can get confusing. Mm-hmm. Like if Nick was gay and, and you're not, but if you were, you can hang out with me. I'm never going to make you stumble. I'm never going to make you struggle. I'm never going to put you in a situation where you're going to feel like Eros is going to get the best of you. So um, that's why I, I enjoy hanging out with uh, some of my gay friends. We have gay people in this church. I'm safe for them. In the same way, I, I enjoy hanging out with women in our church who've been uh, hurt by men, sexually abused by men, because I say, hey, I'm safe. Mm-hmm. I'm safe. You, you can trust me. I'm not, I'm not going to hurt you sexually. I'm not going to come on to you sexually. I'm not going to put you in a weird spot sexually. I'm going to be a safe man for you to develop phileo. And now as I'm aging with a lot of these women, it's not just phileo, it's storge. Mm-hmm. I'm the dad or older brother that they need because they need that safe relationship. So I would say do that. Here's what I wouldn't do. Don't get a poor girl's hopes up because listen mm-hmm. to me, gay guys. You're so much better than us straight guys. I mean, you're just, you're fun, you're relational, like you're connected. And I see it all the time. Girls fall head over heels because you're a great listener. You're a lot of fun. Uh, You know, not to be stereotypical, but you dress well, right? Um, And and, and they fall for you. And so what I would say, I just had to have this conversation with with a gay guy in our church, young man. I said, look, you are the holy grail for women. You're handsome. You love Jesus. You want to serve God. You just have to be totally upfront about your attraction issues. Um, and, 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 and you may have to revisit that a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Hey, just a reminder, I'm still gay. Like I, but, but I want this friendship because gay people, especially in, in the Christian circles, they lose out on friends. Mm-hmm. So, um, and so that's what I would just say. If, if, if she, who, I forget which one we're talking to. It's a guy. It's Jeremy. a guy. Mm-hmm. So what I would say is with female friends, one of the conversations you need to have is once you start dating and once you fall in love, I need you to not dump me. Because a lot of women will do that. They'll mm-hmm. be they'll be a friend with a gay guy, but then they experience Eros and the gay guy gets dumped. Mm-hmm. Because now she has emotional intimacy with somebody else. And so what you need to say, what you need to say in your in your your, your uh, straight person that you're dating, you should say, "Hey, this is my friend." He is gay. We love each other with the love of the Lord. And we're going to stay friendships. We're going to stay in friendship through this because what, what gay people need and single people need in our church is family and mm-hmm. friends. And you can't drop them the second you fall in love because then you were never their friend. And um, I, I just would encourage encourage everybody in our church to do that is, you know, just make sure that you remember single people and you remember our gay people the second something else becomes flashier. And again, that's the danger of arrows. It's not just for homosexuals. It's for heterosexuals. And in the name of love, I see this all the time in girls, right? So you got this, you know, this girl pack, uh, you got this guy pack, but somebody falls in love and they dump all the friends. Mm-hmm. That's because Eros is driving the bus. So you forget phileo, you forget storge, you abandon your family, you abandon your friends, shoot, you abandon God. I see it all the time. Agape, you're in the back of the bus. Eros is driving and that's a car crash every time. So I, I would just say, hold off on relationships for, for people who are gay and and there are variations of gay. So what I mean by that is I am 100% gay. Like I, I could never see myself attracted to a woman. And then there's people where they're like, well, that's a possibility, but my preference, my leanings, you know, my, my desire is this. And so you have to figure out where, where you are on that spectrum. And it's just the same way with heterosexuals. I mean, some people are super sexual and their sex drives a problem their whole life. Other people are like, oh, I'm good. You know, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy within the context of marriage. I don't struggle at all. And that happens. So figure out where you are. And, um, uh, if you're, you know, 
there's zero chance of you ever being attracted to a woman. You got to say that because it's not okay to break somebody's heart just because you're gay. That's not right. Like gay, gay is this, like, like this get out of jail free card, you know, like I'm gay. So I can, I can leave my family, leave my friends. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can drop every relationship I've ever had because I just had this epiphany about my sexuality. You don't, you don't get a pass in the church just because you're gay. You're still, you have to fulfill your commitments, you know, live your life. And one of my, my, uh, we're not close anymore, but we were close for a long time. He thought he was gay and he was going to leave his wife. He was having sex with men outside the context of marriage while he was married. And I mean, he, he decided I'm gay. This is the life I'm going to go. But God got a hold of his heart. He quit entertaining those relationships with men, went back to his wife. They reconciled. They've been together. He's, he's living as a practicing uh, heterosexual. He likes his life. He appreciates his life. Um, but he, but he had to make a choice. And so everybody at some point has to make a choice. And the world says you get to choose whatever and God, God's just happy. That's just not the Bible. So great questions today. I mean, these are like the best ever. Yeah. So we're going to make a turn onto an easier subject. Thank death. you. Jeez. Oh, let's what flavor of ice cream yeah. do I like? Mint chip. Yeah. Um, so Alex wrote in and said, my friend's having a really hard time. She's afraid of dying. She told me that thinking about dying is putting her on edge and it's, she's been losing sleep because of it. She says it because she's afraid of what will happen to her afterwards. And I want to help her, but I don't know how I told her that I think about how I've impacted my loved ones in my life and how they've impacted me. She believes in the afterlife, but she gets conflicted on the topic. I really care about her and want her to know both me and God will be there for her. My question is, how do I help her? Yeah. You got to share the gospel. Mm-hmm. I mean, my first question is, does she know Jesus? Mm-hmm. Because I don't have an unhealthy fear about death. I did it one time, mm-hmm. but I don't now. And it's not because I've gotten older, smarter, or wiser, right? I'm getting closer to death every day that I'm alive. It's that I truly believe in Jesus and mm-hmm. I have trusted him with my, with my salvation and with my soul. And I, I'm okay with that. So if God calls me home, I, I think that would be hard for my family, hard for my wife, but it would be better for me. I have, I have no fear about what comes after death. And I know it's real. I, I know I know God is real, man. I've, I've, I've seen an angel. I've had an angel speak to me. I, this is not some, some thing that I just think about and hope about. This is something that I, I know to be true. And, and Jesus Christ has changed my life. And I, I hear him speak to me. I hear him move in me. And, and I believe that he wants to do that. You know, back to Jeremiah 29, 11, he has plans for you and he will be found by all who genuinely seek him. And so that's what I would share to her is she needs the gospel. I mean, one of the things that Jesus does primarily is he conquers fear of death. Mm-hmm. That's what he does. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be worried about the suffering part of it. I mean, I, you know, I've had people die right in front of me. Suffering is real. So I think it's okay to, you know, not want to experience pain as we pass, but after we pass having fear about that, if you're a Christian, that that's probably a sin. You know, that's, that's not from God. That's the enemy. The enemy wants to, and not only that, the enemy wants to steal your life now because you're worried about death. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, um, I, one of my favorite movies is the gladiator. And he said, a friend once said, death smiles at us all smile back. I mean, there's just, there's just nothing you can do about it. And we live in this false world where we think we're in control and we're just not, uh, you know, that everybody's worried about the coronavirus right now. Mm-hmm. And I was talking with my kids and my wife about the Spanish flu. The Spanish flu a hundred years ago, almost exactly to right now, killed one third of the earth's population. It happens. We can't control it. It doesn't matter, right? Um, some, some things happen. That's the old tale, Humpty Dumpty, right? 
Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the horses, all the king's horses, all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. What that's saying is even our best can't, can't fix some things Mm -hmm. in our culture. We don't believe that because we've made ourselves God Mm -hmm. and and we can't, we can't conquer death. And so I would just say, look, embrace it and, and live your life and trust God and, and try to enjoy every day because thinking about death is robbing you every day. And, um, I've, I've watched people die. Some people die well, some people don't. And it has nothing to do with the disease. It has to do with the state of their heart. And, um, you know, somebody asked St. Francis of Assisi, uh, he's a, he's a, a Jesuit priest in Italy. What would you do differently if you knew you had an hour to live? And he said, nothing, hmm. nothing. He would just keep doing the same thing because he already died and he's going to continue to serve God in the way that he lives. And that's what I would encourage everyone out there. You know, don't fear death, fear wasting your life. That's, that's what I would be afraid of. And that's what death, the fear of death does is it's wasting her life. So uh, along the same line, Jesse is asking, Hey, Pastor Matt, I know you're a huge Lakers fan like I am. I really looked up to Kobe Bryant and the work ethic that he had. I hear people say that God would never give you more than you can handle, but I don't know a person alive that could endure losing a spouse and a child at the same time. And this is the question. Is it ever a mistake when God chooses someone to die? I feel like Kobe and his daughter had so much life to live. I just try to put myself in the same situation and can't imagine going through something like that. Please help me understand why God would need someone when it seems like they have so much life to live. Yeah. So you just, what's his name? Jesse. Jesse, you just have some really bad theology and you have some friends with some really bad theology. People in grief say stupid things to try to comfort people. The idea that God picked Gigi and those kids and Kobe Bryant to come home negates the fact that they chose to get on a helicopter. They chose to fly into fog. And so I just, I just don't blame God for that. And so part of the problem is when we read the Bible, it teaches that God is sovereign. God is in control. And no matter what you do, you can't outrun the sovereign will of God. Just like Jeremiah 29, 11, God has a plan for his people. We, we take that text. We take that understanding that God is in control. God is sovereign. God is author over death. We take that, that, that understanding of we plural God is in control of, and we make it about me. And so when I do that and somebody dies, oh, then God, you know, is she, or he said, I don't know why God needed them. And I've heard people say that God needed a beautiful flower for his garden. I mean, think about what that says about God. Oh. God's walking in heaven. Oh, there's a, you know, we're missing a flower. I got to kill somebody to plant that there. I mean, it, it makes God this horrific self-centered narcissist who cares nothing about the suffering of his people. The person that hates death more than anyone is God. Mm-hmm. It's why he's offering eternal life. He doesn't want you to die. Jesus wept at a funeral. Death is a terrible thing. Um, I mean, even when somebody lives to be 9,500 years old, we're still sad mm-hmm. because death is awful. Death is ugly. And ultimately God wants us all to live forever. And so I would just say this, that in the, in the book of revelation, the last book of the Bible, it says the last enemy to be defeated is death. Death is an enemy. Death is the result of sin. Death was not a part of God's plan. God warned Adam and Eve. And so what I would say is we're not going to understand the totality of God's sovereignty. We're not going to understand the totality of God's plan. I don't like any story that makes God the person that killed Kobe Bryant. Mm-mm. I just, I just don't. That just doesn't sound like God at all. What I feel like is Kobe Bryant, although an amazing, wonderful dad, husband, uh, one of the greatest players of all time and, and a fairly smart businessman, he made a bad decision. And so did his pilot. 
they flew into a situation where, where things went wrong. And, and you know, uh, I mean, why did God allow that to happen? Why, why, who invented helicopters? That wasn't God. You know, we did that. When something goes wrong with a helicopter, they're great till there's a problem. You know, and when there's a problem, those things fall like a rock. And so we just have to be careful that we don't put it off on God. It's one of the things that I don't, you know, like about the grief share. I mean, I like grief share, but I don't agree with it is that it, it talks about like your person died and there's nothing they could have done um, to ever avoid that. And then it, it, it makes God the person. Mm-hmm. Certainly God, God can kill people. God can take people home. I know of no example in the Bible where God kills someone because he wanted them. Yeah. There, there are places when God strikes people dead because of their sin. That happens. Um, and I don't believe that Kobe Bryant, you know, did something that, you know, required the death of all of those children on the plane. There were lots of people on that. I mean, the reality is human beings are sinners. We don't make things perfectly. And when we build aircrafts and we take metal and we put them up in the air, sometimes they fall. That's not God. That's humanity. That's, that, that's just... You know, that's just the consequence of being human and technology for all the wonderful things it brings. It brings catastrophe. It it just does. Nuclear energy is wonderful until it's dropped on you from a bomb and then it's a problem. And so we just have to understand that. But she said, God would never give you more than you can handle. Mm -hmm. Life is more than we can handle. Daily life is more than I can handle. That's why I come to the Lord. So think about the Lord's prayer. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. I think I just said it backwards and give us our daily bread. So what, I, what I'm supposed to do every day is say, God, give me what I need for today because today's going to be difficult. Today's going to be hard. Today's going to be challenging. God, God, get me through this day. What the Bible does say is whenever sin comes at us, God always gives a way out. That, that's, that's what we mean by God won't give you more than you can handle. There's always an exit sign. You have to look for the exit sign. That doesn't mean when there's tragedy or 9-11 or, you know, global war or the Spanish flu, that that's not more than we can handle. Um, you know, sometimes life's hard. I watched that movie, Jojo Rabbit with my kids. And mm-hmm. I just told my wife, I said, I don't know that modern man can handle, like imagine, you know, you're a German citizen. Every, every male is dead. All the buildings are bombed. Everything's destroyed. And you got this 10-year-old boy walking around with a wheelbarrow trying to reset his life. I don't know that people can do that nowadays because, so you know, we're just, could do that then. yeah, they, they did. Somehow they did it. Um, I don't, you know, I, I, I think we're just, we're just shocked by life's suffering, by life's difficulty. And Jesus said in this world, you will have trouble. Things are difficult. Things are harsh, but we have a loving God who will be with us in the midst of that. And so, um, I just, I, you know, I, I don't know if you listened to my sermon, but I, I thought I made it pretty clear, you know, God certainly allowed it, you know, and you say, well, why would God allow it? Well, God allows us to do, make dumb choices every day, all day. And some choices you can recover from and some you can't. And crashing a helicopter into the side of a mountain, that's something that you don't recover from. You know, it's catastrophic, it's a catastrophic uh, decision. Just like a couple of weeks ago, Lot's wife looking back at Sodom and Gomorrah while it was being burned from heaven was a catastrophic decision. And, um, and, and that happens. And in a lot of these, um, these aircraft accidents, it's human error. It's very, very well-trained people making a bad decision. And um, so um, 
thank you for the questions. Yeah. We're going to go ahead and wrap there for today. So thank you guys so much for sending your questions. As always, if you have questions, do you want to hear on the show and get in front of Pastor Matt, you can send those in at debrief.show or shoot us a message on Instagram or Facebook. We'd love to get those on the show. Yeah. Thank you guys. Love you.